traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. We have a lot to thank ancient Greece for. It handed us art, architecture, philosophy, and political ideals that are still very much in play today. It's where we got the idea that everyone should have a say in their government. Well, unless you're a foreigner, a slave, or a woman. It has a reputation for putting women down, trapping them in the house, and chaining them to the loom. But was life for women in ancient Greece really all that bad? Let's take a peek behind the curtains of a Greek woman's average day to find out what fills her hours. Let's walk with some who managed to work the system, charming their way into senators' ears and influencing them from behind veils and curtains. Because no law can keep an enterprising woman down. Grab your strappy sandals, a bedsheet, and a few shiny bangles. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout-out to my patrons. My pirate queens, Anna, Emily, Jackie, Jessica B., Kayla, and Wendy. And my lady presidents, Alexis, Amy, Brendan, Audrey, Avery, Jordan, Caroline, Cassie, Claire, Courtney, Dana, Debbie, Edie, Elizabeth, Ellie, Eve, Jackie C., Lori, Jessica S., Caitlin, Karen C., Karen R., Casey, Kat, Catherine, Lauren, Louisa, Meg, Nancy, Pamela, Paul, and Townsend. Becoming a patron for as little as $1 a month really helps keep the show going, and it gives you access to exclusive bonus episodes, sneak peeks, and more. To check it out, go to my website and click on Become a Patron. My gratitude is never-ending. When we talk about ancient history, it's hard to say exactly when a civilization rose and fell. It's hard to sum up what life is like for a lady when we're talking about a civilization that's hopping for more than 1,000 years. So let's start here. What counts as ancient Greece? It starts around 1600 BCE with the Mycenaeans and what's called the Bronze Age. Think epic myths and vengeful gods, burly heroes, and the Trojan War. This is a time when Greece is a collection of tribes, often warring against each other. They rule from places like Mycenae, the traditional home of that asshat Agamemnon, Tyrans, Thebes, Argos, and Troy. As that age falls away, around 1100 BCE, we eventually see the rise of city-states like Athens. The Greek alphabet crops up around 800, and the first Olympic Games are held in 776. In the 7th and 6th centuries, you've got tyrants lording it over much of Greece, until eventually the people grow tired of rich men's power games and say, You know what? It's democracy time. After fighting some harrowing wars with the Persians, we enter what's called the Classical Period, which runs from 480 to around 323. It's something of a golden age for Greece. Radical democracy is popping off, the wine is flowing, the arts are blossoming, giving birth to great buildings like the Parthenon. In 321, you have the start of the Hellenistic period, which is where we'll find Alexander the Great and his hardcore lady relations, all the way up until Rome takes things over in 31 BCE. 
I've skipped over a lot, and if this timeline feels less like a straight ordered line in your head and more like a tangled mess of necklaces in your junk drawer, you're in luck. I've made a nifty, lady-centric timeline of ancient Greece for you. Wander on over to my website and this episode's show notes and pull it up in all its pretty, infographic glory. While you're there, check out the map of ancient Greece and its surroundings I made you, which will help make sense of where all this action's happening. Let's time travel back to the classical period, around 432, as well-to-do daughters in the city of Athens. This is where I remind you that we're diving into ancient history. And while I do my very best to paint it accurately, we're dealing with quite a long-ago past. So make sure you pack your bag of salt, because you'll need to take the following with a pinch or two. Stretch out, ladies. It's time to start the day. And it's a special one, because today, we're getting married. To Tom Hiddleston, obviously. Because who else? But first, let's enjoy this last morning in our father's house. The most basic unit of Greek society is the household, or oikos. Side note, I'ma do my best with pronunciation, but things might get a little messy. In ancient Greece, the family always comes first. Beyond that, our social structure goes as follows. There's a genus, or larger clan group, descended from the same ancestor, who may or may not be a god. Then there's a phatri, which means brotherhood. You have to belong to one in order to be an Athenian citizen. Membership within your polis, in this case the city-state of Athens, is a more exclusive club than you'd think. If you're a medic, a resident alien, you hover somewhere between being a foreigner and a citizen. You do have rights, but you're never going to be a full citizen. And that goes for your children as well. Then there's your deem, or local district, kind of like your local voting district. And last, your tribe. Greeks think of themselves as descended from either the Dorians or the Ionians, which underpins certain rivalries and is the basis for our civil admin system. But back to family. The house is likely to be pretty crowded, as an extended family network lives here. Our father is the head of it, the one who makes all the major decisions and controls all of the assets. Yes, including you. Then there's our mother, who's in charge of running the home. Other family members live with us, grandparents, perhaps our brother and his wife, and, of course, our household slaves. It's a sad reality of our current situation that we're going to be running into slaves quite often. You look out the window. Your city has some truly impressive public buildings on the Acropolis, the high, level hill full of beautiful temples and shrines gleaming with the tall columns and fine statues we time travelers most associate with ancient Greece. The Parthenon, which has just been finished, sits up there looking grand and stately. It holds Athena Parthenos, a 36-foot-tall gold and ivory sculpture of the goddess Athena, patron saint of the city and all-around badass. But our house isn't likely to be all that fancy. They tend to center around an open courtyard, surrounded on all sides by other rooms. We may be in a ladies-only part of the house, tucked away from prying male eyes, but that probably depends on the household. We may even sleep on a second floor. But the materials within aren't fancy. This isn't the Parthenon, after all. The floors are likely to be beaten earth, clay, or paving stones. Wooden furniture is expensive, so there won't be much of that either. 
perhaps some animal skin rugs to keep things nice and snugly, and some very small windows, no glass, with shutters you can close if the sun gets a bit too intense. The walls are made of mud brick, perhaps coated in lime to make them look a little bit nicer, but they're thin and not very well made. Remember that hole you punched in the wall of your cheap college rental apartment when you swung a door open too hard? This is worse. As an ancient Greek lady, you'll remember that time a robber broke into your house by busting a hole through one of your walls. That's why the most common word for a thief in this era is wall digger. It's still dark, so we'll need to light our oil lamp, made by sticking a wick into some olive oil. If you find yourself in need of a bathroom break, search out the boat-shaped chamber pot that's bound to be floating around somewhere. It's not guaranteed we'll have indoor plumbing, though we know such technology is already around. The Minoans built Europe's first drainage system in flushing toilets at the Palace of Knossos on the island of Crete, for fancy ladies only. By the Classical period and the Hellenistic period that'll come after it, we've got public latrines. Basically big rooms with bench seats featuring a bunch of holes in them and a drainage system running underneath to sweep our refuse away. Apparently politicians and philosophers spend a lot of time chatting here. The guys who poop together? Think together? But we're at home, not in a public bathhouse, so it's the chamber pot for us. Since we have a bit of money, we might indulge in a soak in our terracotta bathtub. One of your slaves will need to cart and heat that water by hand, so this is not something you'll be doing every morning. Some families will have a well in their yard, but most have to make their way to the communal water fountain. It's a great place to stand around and gossip, but you may have to wait in line for your bucket full. Given how labor-intensive the whole operation is, you're unlikely to actually immerse yourself in water. And you won't be using any soap. That's just for the laundry. Instead, you'll coat your body in olive oil, then scrape it off with a strigil. Olive oil. Is there anything it can't do? We'll also need to make sure to remove any uncouth body hair, which means anything in the pubic area. The ancient Greeks are not down with an Amazonian lady jungle, so we'll remove it by singeing and plucking. Can't wait! Now that we're clean, you'll want to dab on some perfume. It's popular with both men and women, and is usually made by boiling flower petals to extract their essence. Make sure to bring a little bit with you when you go out into the city later, because Athens most certainly does not smell like roses. Now we get dressed. You might start by binding your breasts in an ancient bra called a strophion, which is really just a simple cloth band arrangement. Not a very supportive contraption, but it's not like you're going to be going to the gym. It's unlikely you'll be wearing any underwear, though your outfit will leave you exposed to any passing breeze. In the ancient world, this seems to be something of a trend. I hope you brought some with you, or you're going commando. Fashion here is fairly utilitarian. We are not glamming it up quite like those fashion icons, the Egyptians. A guy called Alcibiades causes a huge sensation just for going about wearing a purple robe in public. So that'll give you an idea of what counts as scandalous in terms of dress code. Most garments are made of wool, though there is some linen, woven by women at home. Lucky for you, Greek dress isn't hard to master. It's essentially an artfully folded bedsheet. 
And it's not the garment that counts, really. It's all about how you wear it. In earlier eras, we would have worn something called a peplos. Picture holding up a woolen blanket, then folding one of the short ends over about a third of the way. You'll wrap it around you, holding that doubled-over section over your breasts and midsection and running it under your armpits. Then you'll pin it at both shoulders and belt it, creating a sleeveless floor-length gown. This style is worn by both men and women, but apparently such fashion can be dangerous. The writer Herodotus tells us that, when a mob decided to attack a guy they didn't approve of, they whipped off their giant dress pins and stabbed him to death like a giant fleshy pincushion. Ooh. These days, we're probably rocking a chiton. Picture a giant sack with arms. That's our starting point. You'll belt it and pin it up at the sleeves in several places, creating a drapey, elbow-length gown that has got to be one of the easiest outfits ever for a time traveler to master. Be careful, though, as one side probably isn't sewn closed, and you're likely to flash someone if you walk too fast. While Doric chitons are usually woolen, Ionic ones are made of linen or even silk, which will hug the body a little more closely and feel more luxurious, and definitely less itchy. The styles are sometimes even worn overlapped for something a little bit extra. Regardless, unless you're a lady of the evening, you should make sure no one can see too much of you through all those artful folds. Male nudity is not a big deal here, but your lady bits are a different story. Our gentlemen friends don't worry quite so much about the casual nip slip. They favor the mini-skirt version of the chiton, which means that a stiff breeze or too much bending over is likely to subject you to a healthy amount of public nudity. Purple robes are a no, but publicly airing out your jingle bells? No problem. Now for beautifying. We Greeks are big on the whole, I woke up like this look, but that doesn't mean we aren't applying any makeup, just that it shouldn't look like we've used it. Pale skin is very in, as it shows how little time we spend outside working. That's why when we do go out, we carry umbrellas called skadon in public just to keep the sun off our skin. But we might add a little powder to our faces to emphasize all that paleness. Be warned, our white face paint is made of lead that's been soaked in vinegar, which is then heated and made into a powder. Lead, not great for the pores, or the vital organs. We might apply little circles of rouge made with mulberries and seaweed to our cheeks, and grease our lips with oil or wax. The other thing we'll want to pay special attention to is our eyebrows. While we have plucking tools at our disposal, tweezers for one, we will not be using them to tame our brows. Oh no, because it turns out the ancient Greeks enjoy, well, not quite a solid unibrow, but one that's loosely connected and caterpillar full. Frida Kahlo would have fit right in. Break out the soot or antimony, because we will be darkening those bad girls and our eyelashes before claiming ourselves ready to party. We may even slap on some fake eyebrows made of dyed goat hair and adhered with resin. Now that'll make a statement. Your hair is likely to be long. Only slaves keep theirs short. You wouldn't want to be confused with one of them, would you? And women in mourning. Because we're getting married, we'll be sweeping it back. We might curl it with an iron, tucking it up in a low bun, and decorate it with shiny pins, a headband, or a diadem. So far, not bad. 
When we're hanging out at home, we're likely to go barefoot. But later, when we're heading out, we'll wear sandals that look a whole lot like a pair you've probably got in your closet. We're likely to have on some earrings and a necklace made of terracotta or copper or lead or even silver or gold. But we don't want to be too showy. A good Greek woman does not demand attention. Better that she blend into the walls as much as possible, or so the ancient Greek writers like to say. Because we're getting married and becoming matrons, we will be covering our hair and wearing a veil from now on when we go out in public. Veils are fairly common in the ancient world. It's something women in our century still do, which tends to get a bit caught up in controversy. We can see this veiling practice in one of two ways. One, as a means of hiding a woman away and forcing her into submission. The word for veil, kredemnon, translates to city walls or battlements, a defensive strategy that not only separates her from the public sphere, but marks her as a taken woman, someone else's property, so please don't touch. Women who go about uncovered are considered lesser than, wanton, likely to be loose women of the evening or slaves. And for a modern lady, some of that sounds pretty suspect. But on the other hand, a veil makes her next to invisible, which can also give us freedom of both movement and expression. Our veils let us be in public while still maintaining our privacy. And perhaps there's something to be said about that. Now let's head downstairs. We'll divide our day into 12-hour blocks, night and day, but we have no system for breaking up the hours. There are no clocks, so if you're wondering how long you've got to wait till wedding time, you're going to have to check your sundial. There is one nifty way to tell the time, used in law courts, called a clepsidra, or water clock. It consists of a clay vessel full of water with a plugged hole in its bottom. When a speaker is ready, it's unplugged and he's allowed to talk until the water runs out. That water will run for exactly six minutes, which means everyone is guaranteed the same amount of talking time. I'm sure plenty of ancient Greek housewives wish they could make their husbands abide by them at home. We're unlikely to have much for breakfast. We're eating two main meals a day, ariston, a light lunch, and dipnon, or dinner, which is our biggest meal of the day. Instead, let's wander about the house, reminiscing and seeing what the other ladies are up to. Your mother and sisters may not get out much, but this house is their domain. As matron, your mother runs the slaves and all the children, though it's the man of the house who serves as its priest. We have to stop here and consider the gods for a minute, because they are everywhere in ancient Greece. There are 12 main Olympian gods split fairly evenly between men and women. And though they look human and have human emotions, their powers are heady and terrifying. Their presence is felt all around you. The home, crops, the streets, and they can change our fate. Though their attention has to be attracted first. They're busy with their own affairs and aren't all that interested in yours as a rule, unless you happen to be a hero or a very attractive woman. At your home altar, you're likely to say a prayer and perhaps make an offering or a sacrifice to the god you want the favor of. It might come in the form of food and drink, but it also might be animal blood. I hope you don't mind slitting goats' throats because that's likely to feature at some point in your day. The gods don't give something for nothing, so you do what you can to appease them. 
arrogant, fickle, cruel, and jealous, our gods are not afraid to punish. If you don't mind them, things could go downhill for you fast. We have many very powerful goddesses, who I'll be talking about more in the upcoming bonus episodes. There's Athena, the virgin goddess of wisdom, warfare, and handicrafts, who wears a serious helmet and will spear you where you stand. It's her that most heroes ask for help when they need it. And then there's Artemis, goddess of the hunt and of the wilderness, and the protector of girls. Any god who tries to rape her tends to meet a very violent end. Boys, bye! And yet, unlike in ancient Egypt, that power and potency doesn't seem to trickle down into the human realm, unless you're talking about an ancient Greek priestess. Here's a truth we'll run into throughout the ancient world. Religion gives women a path to power, influence, and independence that few of the ladies around them can claim. Women can join religious cults as dedicated priestesses. And unlike in some ancient civilizations, in ancient Greece, you don't need to be a virgin to do it. Some priestesses are also wives and mothers. Yes, priestess! You have that cake and eat it too! For their sacrifice, these women are often paid, awarded public statues and lavish funerals, given property, and most crucially, a heaping pile of respect for their wisdom on matters of state and religion. They're allowed to charge for their services, giving them an income stream. They can argue in court, they're celebrities where they live, and get all the privileges that tends to afford. And because religion and politics are so tightly linked here, our role as priestess gives us sway over what's happening around us. In Athens, the high priestess of Athena Polius is one of the most influential women in the city. When she speaks, men listen. In 480 BCE, before the Battle of Salamis against the mighty Persians, the high priestess told the leaders that they should probably evacuate the city because Athena's sacred snake didn't eat its honey cake. And they did it right quick, because that snake don't lie. Important men come from all over Greece to consult the oracle at Delphi, who resides at the Temple of Apollo on Mount Parnassus at what the Greeks consider the very center of the world. The oracle, called the Pythia, sits on high as men ask her to be their risk consultant. The fates of whole peoples often rest on her answer. The priestess falls into a dreamlike trance, probably, modern-day researchers think, because of the ethylene gases that rise from cracks in the rock there. She gets high as a kite and hands out predictions in hexameter verse. And I mean, damn, you try getting high and saying anything in verse. You have to be celibate for life in this office, but at least you get to have some hallucinogenic fun. But let's get back to our housebound wanderings. There is no Netflix or Candy Crush to pass the time, especially for us girls. You're probably pretty busy helping out around the house anyway. When you were younger, you might have gotten out your knuckle bones to entertain yourself, trying to catch them on the back of your hand. Or you might have played some kind of ball game with your siblings. Though the balls are DIY and involve blowing up a pig's bladder and heating it in the ashes of the fire. So, have fun with that. Now that you're a little older, you're bound to spend some time behind the loom. There are no department stores in this era, so most things are made at home and by hand. Most of our clothes will be made at home by women, and spinning can help supplement the family's income. This is not a quick little morning project. The wool has to be cleaned, then scoured to get rid of all the burrs and dung and whatever else your sheep have gotten up in there. Then you've got to comb it with a semicircular brush called an epinetron, 
fitted snug over your thigh. If you've ever tried to untangle a huge ball of yarn, picture that, except it smells real funny. Then you'll dye it in a vat, let it dry, and wind it up onto a spindle. You'd better get used to sitting behind a huge loom, because you'll be doing it very often. In Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey, an ingenious woman named Penelope uses hers to cunning advantage. With her husband Odysseus missing, she tells the wide range of suitors pressuring her to remarry that she'll pick one of them just as soon as she finishes weaving the tapestry she's making. She works on it by day, then unpicks it at night. Who says a woman's work can't be ingenious? Your father probably isn't home. He has important things to do, like participate in the world's first radical democracy. After kicking out a few tyrants who tried to run things, we've taken on a totally different approach to civil leadership. There are almost no elections. This is a direct democracy, where most offices are filled by random lottery. Any of the city's 30,000 eligible citizens can attend the Ecclesia, a general meeting, a couple of times a month. In fact, it's considered a duty. It's a place where anyone can propose a law or make a lawsuit. As such, he'll be out and about, striking deals and talking to people. He's bound to find his way to the Agora in his wanderings, a combination lecture hall, market, administration building, court of law, and general meeting place. The Agora lives at the beating heart of Greek life. Picture a long, rectangular building with a sloped roof and many columns lining each side, letting people wander in and out between them. It's a bustling place to both see and be seen. Dear old dad might be signing contracts because he's a well-to-do guy who's gotten a good education. But it's hard to say if you grew up learning to read and write yourself. Some estimates suggest that only around 30% of the city's population can. Very few of those, it seems, are women. As a stab-worthy character named Menander says in a play now lost to us, He who teaches his wife how to read and write does no good. He's giving additional poison to a horrible snake. Okay, Menander, why don't you just go choke on a ham bone? But given how infrequently our Greek writers deign to mention women, who knows how many are participating actively in public life. A vase dated around 440 BCE shows a woman seated and reading a scroll. Some people think it's Sappho, that great ancient poetess. But we'll return to that saucy minx a little later. Your dad will be writing on papyrus, which we call Byblos. It's where the word Bible comes from. The Egyptians handed this plant-based paper down to us and is very handy, but certainly not cheap. So we might also use ostraca, or broken pieces of pottery, as they're much less expensive. The Agora has rolls of papyrus for sale, and documents are often copied out by slaves, who, one hopes, sneakily teach themselves to read while they're at it. Most pieces of literature are shared orally. The printing press is still a long way off. You're likely to know epic stories like the Iliad because you've heard someone recite it. These public slam poets are called, delightfully, rhapsodes, or song-stitchers. How likely you are to be in public to hear these gems is anyone's guess. What about your brother, you ask? Where's he? Probably pumping some iron over at the local gymnasium. Men in Athens take physical fitness very seriously. 
Work is just an interruption. Working out is a way of life. If you've ever looked at a Greek vase or painting, you'll know that ripped abs, cut thighs, and startlingly little body hair are pretty much a prerequisite to Greekness. As Hans and Franz would say, we really want to bump you up. Though, of course, we have to be careful trying to guess what ancient Greeks look like based on their artwork. If aliens came down and judged we modern-day humans solely on pictures of GQ models, they'd probably get the wrong idea. But despite the current state of his pecs, your brother's bound to be at the gymnasium. The word comes from the Greek word gymnos, which means naked. Why is the gym literally called the place of nakedness? Because they are all working out in their birthday suits. For real, these guys have a trainer who's called the Pedo Tribes, or Boy Rubber, because of how much oil he massages onto his charges. Olympic athletes complete entirely greased up and completely naked. New discus throwing. Now, that'd be a sight to see. And it's one of the reasons why we ladies aren't allowed to go and watch the Olympics. Well, us married ladies, anyway. Apparently, unwed girls can go and ogle the greased-up athletes all they want. If we do, says Greek travel writer Pausanias, we'll be cast down from Mount Taipeum into the river flowing below. Well, that's rude. The issue, it seems, is that married women aren't supposed to see other men's members. You belong to your husband and, as a mark of that, need to stay inside and as far away from other men's genitals as possible. Otherwise, how are we to be sure the children you bear actually belong to your husband? The family and its lineage comes before all, and that means no nude games for you. We ladies will not be training in the gym, that's for sure. We certainly won't be participating in the games as athletes, but we can participate in the sister games called the Heraean Games, dedicated to the goddess Hera. You're out of luck if your strength is synchronized swimming, though. The only competition we can enter are foot races, but hey, at least we're here. But there is one woman who's keen to bust through the Olympics' particularly greasy glass ceiling, and that's a Spartan princess named Cyniska. In 396, she will become the first woman to win at the Olympic Games. You have to wonder what she thought of all those flying manly members. I can't imagine they let her compete in the nude, but we can dream. Her four-horse chariot racing prowess sees her beat her competition not just at one games, but two of them. Though of course she never gets to claim her olive wreaths, as she has lady parts. Ugh, ancient misogyny. Women won't officially compete in the Olympics until 1900 in Paris. You've got to hand it to Cyniska. She's way ahead of her time. So while our male relations are lifting weights, signing contracts, and taking long steams in public baths, in the nude, of course, are we getting out to participate in this lively public sphere? Not really. A woman's place is most certainly not making speeches in public or running around in the buff drenched in oil. The Odyssey gives us the following advice. Go inside the house and attend to your work, the loom and the distaff, and bid your handmaidens attend to their work also. Talking is men's business. Yes, ladies. According to Greek lit, we should make ourselves as invisible as possible. 
because, as the great orator Pericles puts it, Greatest will be her glory who is least talked of among men, either in praise or in criticism. Which is interesting, coming from a guy who owes much of his fame to a very eloquent courtesan. But more on her in a bit. Remember when I said that our democracy is for all eligible citizens? Freeborn women, slaves, and all foreigners living in the city don't count. And when you factor in those too young to participate, you've only got 10 to 20% of the populace making the big decisions in government. And those people are all men. Except, of course, for the few female priestesses we talked about earlier. Preach, Oracle! It's only right, as you get ready to have your life transferred from your father's authority to Tom Hiddleston's, that you be thinking about your rights under the law. The sad fact is that Athenian women have very few of them. We can't sell land, buy it, or pass it down to our children. Everything we own is by proxy of a male guardian of one form or another. Even our dowries are controlled by the men in our lives. One 4th century contract actually says that a woman can't legally agree to any contract that's worth more than a medimnos of barley. That's enough to keep a family alive for a week if they're very frugal. This system sounds repressive to be sure. Women bound to the house, told to be quiet and blend in with the walls. But is that how it actually is in ancient Greece? Or is that how the ancient writers want us to see it? So much of what we know about a lady's life in this age comes from literature, stories and artwork that are all about capturing what the artist thinks the ideal woman should be. But we know that some women, priestesses, courtesans, wives, found ways of wielding power. And there are tales that offer alternate versions of the woman's story. Most of the ladies who feature in The Odyssey, that story about Odysseus's very long boat ride back to Ithaca, are strong-willed and powerful. There's Calypso, who holds Odysseus captive on her island for seven whole years of sexy business. And Circe, who poisons his crew, turns them into pigs, and then holds him captive for sexy business. There's also his bomb-wife Penelope, who keeps hundreds of angry suitors at bay while her husband's off sleeping with goddesses. And then we have scenes like this one, from a poem by Theocritos, written in the 3rd century. In it, Lady One arrives at her friend Lady Two's house later than expected, and Lady One complains about how far out the friend's husband has moved them both. Lady Two replies, It's that stupid husband of mine. He buys this house out in the wilds. It's not even a house. It's just a hovel, purely to stop us from seeing each other. He's spiteful, just like all men. When Lady One says she shouldn't talk like that in front of her baby, as he'll understand she's trash-talking daddy, Lady Two says, The other day, I told that daddy of hers to pop out and get some soap and red dye, and the idiot came back with a cube of salt. These are stories, myths, and poems. In truth, it's difficult to know how much they reflect Greek women's lived experience. But it's hard to imagine that all Greek ladies are following the ancient ideal of the quiet, subservient woman. I suspect that being a woman doesn't bar us from power and influence. We just have to learn how to wield it from behind fans, under veils, and through dividers. As so many women of antiquity do. On that note, let's get back to our betrothed. On our wedding day, we're likely to be 14 or 15, and Tom is probably at least 30. 
I have a friend who goes by the half-your-age-then-add-seven rule for dating. If a suitor falls under that bar, he's too young. The Greeks, by contrast, seem to stop their rule at half-your-age. You've been prepared for this. From ages five until puberty, this is the moment you've known you were headed for. You may even have been chosen to serve the virgin goddess Artemis in her sanctuary. Artemis is an important figure in our lives. As one of the heaven's most virulent virgins, she looks down on everything having to do with sex and childbirth. Whenever a woman does something that involves her lady palace, gets married, gives birth, she has to make offerings to Artemis to try and appease her rage. As a young girl at her sanctuary at Browron, you would have put on yellow robes and acted the part of the little bear, running around like an untamed animal. Then you put your doll on the altar, marking your movement from childhood to adulthood, implying that we wild things are ready to be tamed. We happen to love Tom, which is somewhat unusual. Even if you didn't, you'd have to marry him anyway. Marriage, particularly between the upper classes, serves as a means of collecting wealth and cementing good family connections. You are one of your father's greatest bargaining chips. For most women, it isn't optional, and it is most certainly not about you following your bliss. If your family can afford it, you'll get married with a dowry, a sum of money meant to pay for your maintenance in your new husband's house. It's protection, too, in case you end up divorced. In that case, he'll have to give your dowry right back to dear old dad. Some women, ones whose father dies, leaving no male heir to take things over, are in a unique position. They don't own their father's property as such, but it does go with them when they marry. And so the law compels her to tie the knot with her closest family member on her father's side, often an uncle, to keep the house and lands in the family. It doesn't even matter if you're already married. The law says you're gonna have to leave that husband for your very closely related new one. Thank the gods we're not doing that. We're getting married smack in the middle of Gamelion, the winter month which is high wedding season in Athens. We've already enjoyed a few days of wedding ritual, a pre-wedding prep day spent with our mother and friends, during which we made offerings to Hera, the goddess who watches over married women. We also stripped off the corset that has featured heavily in our lives so far and offered it up to either Athena or Artemis, trying to calm their wrath about what we're about to get up to. Today we will start with a sacrifice to Zeus and Hera, the gods of marriage. Which is darkly funny, seeing as Zeus is fond of sexually assaulting any mortal woman he happens to find pleasing. And he's creative about it, terrorizing women in a variety of guises. As a bull, as a swan. He even impregnates a woman by turning himself into a golden shower. Ugh, really? On that note, let's get down to ritual cleansing. Water is poured over us, not a golden shower, thank the goddess, from a vase called a Lautrophorus. This is supposed to help us get prepped for our new life. We'll put on our bridal outfit, which includes a pretty crown and special sandals, and then we'll go to a feast, which our father will hold. Let's talk about food, as I'm sure you're getting hungry. As far as ancient diets go, this one ain't that bad. Picture what we call a Mediterranean diet. That's more or less what we're dealing with here. Except that bread and grains feature heavily. 
the less money you have, the more likely you are to eat a lot of things made out of barley and wheat. Our poorer friends are going to live mainly on bread, soup, salt fish, porridge, eggs, and veggies. A huge portion of the populace is likely to experience a food shortage crisis at some point. But today we're feasting, so we don't have to worry about that. Dairy does not play a big role. Goat's cheese and milk is around, but butter isn't. That's for barbarians, aka people who are not Greek. Olive oil will feature in everything. Fish is popular, as are eels. There might also be pork, lamb, goat, and chicken, though these are usually only for festivals and special occasions like this one. The Greeks are excited to throw all sorts of birds in the oven. Swans, pelican, cranes, pigeon, wagtail. For those who travel to 19th century America with me, that last is not to be confused with the slang word for a lady of the evening. Hey Agamemnon, can you pass me that leg of prostitute? Veggies are fairly plentiful, and you'll recognize them. Cabbage, asparagus, carrots, cucumbers, radishes, pumpkin, chicory, artichokes. Nuts and fruits are also on the table. Salt is here too, though not sugar. We'll sweeten things with honey and dates. There's wine too, of course. That's an absolute staple. It's served watered down and perhaps sweetened in a clay amphora. No beer, though. That's also for barbarians. We'll be wearing a veil the whole time, which has got to make eating a challenge, and sitting apart from the men in our wedding party. Our single table companion will be an older woman, called a nymphutria, who will help guide us through the ceremony and encourage us to eat some of the little cakes laid out before us. They're studded with sesame seeds, which are supposed to make us fertile, because that is the number one thing everyone in this room wants us to be. Tom will take us to his house in a wagon, our dowry strapped down in a chest at the back. The wedding party will follow along, singing and playing the flute and generally making a night of it. They'll be holding up torches, as we have no streetlights. We also have no fire service, no public hospitals, and not enough places to stop and pee. Apparently, a lot of guys are peeing behind bushes in ancient Athens. Hesiod even gives men some tips on how to urinate in public without offending the gods. Do not make water either on the road or beside the road as you go along, and do not bear yourself. A good man who has a wise heart sits or goes to the wall of an enclosed court. But everyone's been drinking, so if anyone stops, try not to look too hard. Once we arrive, guests will shower us, not with confetti, but nuts and dried figs. Hopefully they're not throwing them directly at us. This is also supposed to make us fertile, and that's a really important thing for us to be. We'll say some binding words, then we'll go into the wedding chamber. Plutarch has advice for us in this moment. Chew on a few slices of quince, he says. In order that the first greeting may not be disagreeable nor unpleasant. You're disagreeable and unpleasant, Plutarch, but you don't hear me giving you advice on how to deal with it. Tom will then give us some wedding gifts. One of them might even be a vase with an erotic scene on it. Steamy. Then he'll lift our veil. This is supposed to be the first time he's ever seen our face naked, although I'd be shocked if we haven't had some FaceTime before. Outside, people sing a hymn called an epithalamian, which is supposed to cover up the awkward sounds we ladies are about to make in the bedroom. Okay. 
It's on that pleasant slash terrifying note that we'll pause our exploration. Next week, we'll talk babies, high-class call girls, all-lady parties, and hardcore Spartan women. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron. It makes all the difference in the world to an indie podcaster like me. You'll be helping to keep the show alive, and you'll get access to exclusive bonus episodes, sneak peeks, behind-the-scenes goodies, and more. Just go to my website and click on Become a Patron. To check out the lady-centric ancient Greek timeline and map I made you, go to this episode's show notes on my website. There you'll also find a transcript, a list of my research sources, music credits, and lots of pictures. Speaking of pictures, check me out on Instagram at The Explores Podcast, on Facebook, or on Twitter at The Explores Pod. The music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of Michael B. Levy, who composes all of his work on recreated lyres of antiquity, giving us a special insight into what ancient music might have sounded like. All songs were provided and licensed by AKMProductionsInc.com, and you can find links to his work in the show notes. A special thanks to the following podcast legends who kindly contributed their vocal stylings. Katie and Nathan from Queen's Podcast, who will make you laugh and cry over badass women from history. Jen and Jenny from Ancient History Fangirl, which takes you deep into the stories of the ancient world. And Sean from Stories of Your and Yours, who reads you classic stories in the most soothing voice you'll ever hear. Their podcasts are some of my very favorites, so check them out. You'll find links to their work in the show notes. Thanks also to the kind friends and family who never fail to delight me with their voiceovers, Phil Chevalier and Simon Denatris. Thanks as always to Paul Gablonski, aka Mr. Explores, for my theme music and logo, and all the amazing pieces of art we've been collaborating on this season. I'd pick up my Spartan sword for you any day. 